Now turn with me uh, today in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to continue with our studies there. Maybe just for the next couple of weeks, but we'll see how the Lord directs us. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to read from the verse 8 right through to verse 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, <coughs> verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, loving brother, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but countrywise blessing. Know that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him ensue evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, their ears, and his ears are open under their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, or in few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God <coughs> by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers, being made subject unto him. Amen. We know that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now let's just a prayer as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we wait on in thy presence. <clears throat> We thank thee for the giving of thy people. And we just pray, Lord, you'll bless the spirit of sacrifice in this place. And, O oh God, we know that little is much when thou art in it. And we, we think especially of the uh, erection of the steelwork um, this week as it unfolds. And, O oh God, thou just know all about the cost of it. Thou just know about the cost of this building. And we do acknowledge that thou dost own the cattle on a thousand hills. The silver and gold belongs to thee. There's not a billionaire or a millionaire in the world whose heart thou can't touch to favour thy cause. 
even the cause of truth and righteousness. And Lord, we look to thee that thou will finance all thy will. We believe that God's work done God's way will not lack thy supply. And O oh God, we say to thee, it's not our way. We say to thee, using the words of Christ, it's not my will, but thine be done. And Lord, we just commit the building project to thee. The men that will erect the steel, we pray, Lord, for their safety and well-being. And we pray, Lord, they might even get a blessing knowing that, that they're erecting something that, that is to the glory of God, to, to the propagation of God's truth and righteousness. Lord, we just, uh, before any more work is done, we just leave and lift the building to thee and pray, Lord, for thy leading and guiding. We pray that you'll help us, Lord, to see uh, new families reached with the gospel, that we look to thee for a number of new families to be brought in. We pray for souls to be saved in our family circles and outside it. Remember the strangers in our community. Many have no thought, fear, in the regard of thee. They need conviction. Pickle them in conviction. Convince them of their need of Christ and the gospel. No, God, may they discover and learn that Christ is the answer. We, we cry unto thee for our community. We thank you for carried off. And, O oh God, you know all about the religiosity of the people. And yet we thank thee today for this congregation, for this little church. Lord, we thank you for a separate testimony outside the camp of ecumenical apostasy. And we, we, we acknowledge today that we do believe in the need and the necessity of a free Presbyterian church. Make it strong for thyself. And O oh God, may it shine for thy glory. So that man is not seen, but Christ is seen even in our lives. We pray today, Lord, you will comfort uh, those that stand in need of comfort. We leave again Bobby Graham and his dear family with thee in the passing of Mina and this sudden shock that has come even, O oh God, uh, to Bobby's heart and mind. We, we just lift them to thee in the family circle. May they be comforted. Prepare them for the funeral on Tuesday. We pray for your hand to be upon them. May they know that there's comfort even through the God of all comfort uh, and comfort in thy word. Comfort in the atonement. Comfort in the fact that they have access to thee. A comfort, Lord, in the assurance that their loved one has gone on to be with Christ, which is far better. We thank you for Mina and the knowledge that she was saved. And Lord, we just lift, Lord, the family to thee as they prepare for that funeral. And may the help of God be given to them. Lord, we pray too for those that have been murdered, uh, uh, whether it's over there in the um, uh, North African coast in that holiday resort. Uh, Lord, in Seuss, uh, remember, Lord, the uh, massive loss of life from the United Kingdom and elsewhere. Uh, Lord, we, we, we think of the uh, murder even of the individual in France and the murder, Lord, of others in Kuwait. And, oh God, you know all the barbarism and the inhumane treatment that ISIL have been handing out across the world different places you know all about their ideology we acknowledge lord that it is indeed satanic and oh god we cry to thee remember the persecuted church at this time and that all those that are facing suffering of one sort or another lord we we leave them before thy face we pray lord for the help and mercy and grace of god at a very difficult time help them to stand without apology and, and be true to christ and oh god come what may May they know that they're suffering, even for righteousness' sake. And great is their reward in heaven. 
Remember Pastor McConnell in this case against him. Remember the Asher's Bakery and the appeal. We leave it with thee and pray for the outworking of thy will that they too will stand without apology and they have to suffer and, 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 and take a loss even for the glory and honour of Christ. Then let that be the outworking of thy will. Bless our presbytery at this time. Remember the whole of the free church in these days. Visit us, Lord, with revival. Bless our radio ministry, the Whitfield College. Remember the Consider Christ team. Remember the meeting in Athlone, uh, Lord, this afternoon for the open air uh, with Colin Maxwell. Remember the uh, meeting tomorrow night, the outreach team. Lord, richly bless and undertake and have thy way and let souls be saved. And help us to raise the banner for King Jesus. Lord, just undertake for these things we pray. And as we wait upon thee now for thy truth, come and open our ears, open our hearts. Help us to receive with meekness thy word. Give us a blessing in our soul. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Now my text this morning is taken from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And my subject today is having a good conscience before God and man. The text says as follows, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Now there can be no doubt that the people to whom Peter was writing were a suffering people. The word suffering and the word suffer is an often repeated word in this first epistle. In fact, it's repeated in various forms 16 times. Remember, as Peter addressed them, Having opened his letter, he said, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness, through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now why were these people suffering? Were they suffering for wrongdoing, for being evil? The answer is no. They were suffering simply because they were Christians, because they were true believers in Jesus Christ, because they were followers of Christ. And because of such, they were being verbally and physically abused. They were being insulted, restricted, attacked, imprisoned. They had their possessions confiscated and uh, their uh, religious freedom was being curtailed and restricted and in many cases denied. Now that was in the first century AD. And you might think, well, oh, that was way back then, uh, uh, 2,000 years ago. But I want to tell you that in the 21st century, the same thing is happening today across the world. Those that monitor the religious world tell us that 75% of the world's population, not 25, but 75% of the world's population, live in countries where there's real persecution of religious people. And that includes the true people of God. 
places like Burma, uh, Turkestan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, North Korea, Vietnam, uh, China, Morocco, India, Indonesia, Libya, Sudan. Here's a fact. Did you know that eight out of the 47 countries that hold seats on the United Nations Human Rights Council, eight of those countries have strict laws that restrict religious freedom, even to the point where religious people are imprisoned and tortured there. And we could add to those eight, uh, six of, 16 other countries that do restrict religious freedom today. No right of freedom of worship. No right of freedom of assembly. No right of freedom of speech. You couldn't go out into the open air in Saudi Arabia and cry, Christ is Lord, because you'd be beheaded. You couldn't go out and carry a Bible openly in some of these countries. There's a denial uh, through the government uh, and the legislation of the government to uh, allow one to change their religious beliefs and convictions. If someone objected to military service, um, he, he, he would be imprisoned because of their religious belief. You could be guilty of blasphemy. You could be accused of defamation of a religious belief in the country. Uh, naming the name of Christ, as I've said, carrying a Bible. In fact, only 25% of the world's population where you've really got broad religious liberty to worship and to live by one's conscience. And in the mercy of God, in this little province of Ulster, within the context of the United Kingdom, we're part of that 25% of the world's population. But 75% of the world's population live in countries where there is restriction on religious freedom and there's persecution that's real, including the true people of God. Now, now Peter's a wise pastor. And here's his suffering people and he's writing to them and he provides comfort. He's got a word of assurance. He, he wants to instill hope within the people of God. And it's simply not, oh, we'll just be happy chaps. It's not, oh, be, be nice to those that are persecuting you. It's, never mind, um, there's good things coming to those that wait. Uh, no, his teaching is real. His teaching is from God. And what he's been teaching them in the third chapter, having moved on from the subject of submission and the areas that we talked about, the workplace, the home, the church. The church, of course, is marked by five marks in verse 8. Uh, there, there, there is certainly unity, be ye all of one mind. Uh, there, there, there's certainly sympathy, uh, having compassion one of another. There, there's charity, love as brethren. Uh, there, there, there is a mark by pity and courtesy. Uh, and, and of course, Christian fellowship can be marred through the misuse of the tongue uh, and through the vaunting of self. Uh, but, but the manual for fellowship is that the eyes of the Lord are upon us. We're under his watch care. His, his ears are open to our prayers. And the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And whether that's in the country or whether that's in the church, God hates sin. I think so often we forget that. That's the sin of our thought, our words, 
and our deeds. And now Peter's moving to tell them, having dealt with the subject of submission, here's the spirit in which you submit, even when you're coping with conflict and persecution in a real world. Let me state, here's what you ought to do. Now, now that's what Peter's doing. Look at verse 16. He says, Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Now, let me just bring this home to our hearts. Because persecution, verbally and physically, is not the only form of suffering. You can suffer a change in circumstances. One day in health and strength, and the next day your health and strength is gone. You can face illness, serious illness. Coping with that's a difficult. The death of a loved one. Think of Bobby Graham getting the shock news about the death of a sister yesterday. You can face suffering in the forms that circumstances and things are against you. People turn against you. Even Christians and criticize you and dislike you and say all manner of things against you falsely. And you can get hurt and you can get upset and annoyed and you can feel it deep down in your heart. And when you're experiencing that form of suffering, what can we do? How are we to react? How are we to cope? Can we persevere? Can we cope with that? And one of the things that he says, and we've already dealt with the other verses, and I'm not going to backtrack this morning because we haven't time. One of the things that he says is having a good conscience. <coughs> now that's referring to something inside of us. You see, there's something inside of us to consider this morning. There's something about us that we need to consider. There's something before us that we need to consider. And he deals with it in the area against the back cloth of persevering with persecution or coping with conflict, here's what we ought to do. We ought to stand without apology and give a reason of the hope that is in us with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. Now we're going to just deal today with the area of conscience. And we're only going to deal with a couple of little thoughts. So this will really be part one. Next week in the will of God we'll deal with part two. This is a big area, big subject. I want you to think firstly of the design of conscience. Underline the word conscience in your Bible. You see the word conscience is mentioned 30 times in the New Testament. And it's a simple word, conscience. Literally it means, from the Latin of course tallying with the Greek, with to know. With to know oneself. You see, it's a faculty that God has built into every human being. And that faculty conveys to that human being a sense of what is right and a sense of what, what is wrong. In other words, it's the inner witness of rightness and wrongness of our personal conduct. We have an inbuilt sense of what is right and an inbuilt sense of what is wrong. Let's remember that human beings are moral creatures. We're different from the animals. The animals don't have a conscience. The animals, of course, don't have a soul. A dog could look sheepish. 
It could wag its tail, bark at you. That would be by instinct. That's not because of conscience. A dog or an animal doesn't have conscience of guilt over things that are done or undone. It doesn't have a consciousness of guilt when it's done wrong. And it's got no consciousness of peace and contentment when it's done what's right. But human beings are different from animals. We have a high level of conscience. We have an inward witness when we've done right and when we've done wrong. Conscience acknowledges and accepts and testifies that there's a higher standard to acknowledge, a higher standard to accept, a higher standard to testify to. And what is that standard? It's the Ten Commandments. It's the law of God. The standard is that which adorns the gospel of Christ. Does my conduct and behavior, my speech, adorn the gospel? Does it glorify and honor God? Does it bear witness to Christ? See, even people that never have heard the Ten Commandments, even people whose conduct doesn't adorn the gospel, they still have this inner witness. Turn over there to uh, Romans chapter 2 uh, and look with me at verse 15, to, just to prove the point. Romans 2, 15. He says in the context, verse 14, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, that's not the Ten Commandments, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. Verse 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of man by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Do you see what he's saying here? Here's people who have never heard of the Ten Commandments. But they have a work, they have a code of law that's written in their hearts. And they know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And they know that because they've got a conscience. And the conscience either excuses their conduct or accuses them. A standard that's above us. The lawgiver. The law itself. That which adorns the gospel. And a conscience that witnesses inside of us. That when we break and disobey we feel bad. And we strive to conform to we feel good. And human beings have a sensibility to that standard. And when we think of conscience... With to know, to know oneself in the light of the law of God. To know oneself in light of the lawgiver. To know oneself in light of the gospel. You see, someone has said, if we think of young people, listen to me. What is conscience? It's God's moral monitor in the soul. That's what conscience is. So when we think about the design of conscience... Something that's inbuilt by God, a faculty inside every human being. It's a monitor. So we can know what's right and wrong. Maybe I could explain that in a different way. Children, it's a holiday time. 
and you'll be going away on an aeroplane. Maybe some of you will. And the aeroplane will take off and the aeroplane will land. The aeroplane will park at a certain place in the airport. Now, maybe what you can't see and don't know is that the pilot, he's sitting with a set of headphones on and he's listening to another little man called the aircraft controller. And what he does, he talks to the pilot. And he tells the pilot when to take off. And he can't take off until he's told. He tells the pilot where to land the aeroplane at the airport. He tells the pilot when he lands where to go to, which hangar. And of course, when the pilot listens to the commands from the aircraft controller, then there's order and there's safety of the plane and the passengers and there's not any crashes. So, so the pilot hears his voice. He listens. He, he obeys that voice. He is reassured by the aircraft controller that all is safe and all is well and he can take off and land the plane safely. Now imagine if he didn't. Imagine if he said to the aircraft controller, I'll go when I jolly well like. I'm taking off now. Uh, and couldn't there be a crash? I land the plane where I want. There could be a crash. Or I'll park it wherever I like. There'll be a crash. And of course, that pilot would be breaking the rules of the um, airport authorities. And there would be a crash. And what I'm saying is, those who ignore, stifle, sear the voice of conscience, experience a moral crash. So when you think of conscience, I want you to think of a wonderful facility that's inbuilt within you by God. I want you to think that conscience is a moral facility. The conscience is God's monitor of the soul. It tells us what is right and what is wrong by way of conduct. And we should thank God for that at moral facility. And conscience is a witnessing facility. It witnesses to God. It witnesses to God's law. It witnesses to the voice of the lawgiver. It witnesses to the fact that when we're listening to him, we can have peace and rest and assurance. But when we refuse to listen to him, then we're going to have a moral crash. And what I'm saying this morning is that God has given every human being a conscience. So the word conscience is here. The design of the conscience, that's what it is. And it's mentioned 30 times. Peter mentions it a number of times, twice in our reading this morning. You've got the words there in uh, verse uh, 16, if you underline it in your Bible, a good conscience, and he also mentions it in verse 21. Now I want you to think with me very carefully. Not only the design of the conscience, but listen to the description of the conscience. A good conscience. There's the adjective that describes it. Peter's talking about people having a good conscience. Now think of the unbeliever's conscience. The unbeliever's conscience, that's the man who's not saved, has fallen. 
It's corrupt. It's darkened. It's unenlightened. It's unpurged from sin. And it's that way because of sin. Because the unbeliever is born in sin and shaped in iniquity. He is naturally rebellious to God and God's law. He's like the pilot that's telling the aircraft controller, I'll go when I jolly well like, I'll land where I want, and I'll park where I like. That's the mindset. And the unconverted, unregenerate man is naturally rebellious to God and his law. So what he does is he stifles his conscience in certain areas. If we think of Northern Ireland being a very religious place, he tells himself, I'm a good person. I'm religious. I, I don't steal. I, I don't kill. I don't commit adultery. I'm okay. But we could ask him, well, well what about the other part of the law? What about the first commandment? I shall have no other gods before me. Well, we'll say that this man, even though he pretends to be religious, claims to be an atheist. He believes in evolution. And he's doing his best to get rid of belief of God as creator. He tells himself, oh, there's no creator. I'm not accountable to him. I'll not be judged by him. And even if he's down in Port Rush or in some other part of the country and he sees a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset and he enjoys it and that sunset and sunrise speaks to him of God's handiwork and creative power and he refuses to acknowledge that truth. See, what's he doing? He's stifling his conscience. Think about the Lord's Day. How many people in Northern Ireland today are not in the house of God for worship, acknowledging God and their dependence on him and their accountability to him. They're in the supermarket, walking about Marks and Spencer's, spending money. Or they're maybe in the golf course. Or they're just lying in bed, maybe sitting now watching television. What are they doing? You see, they're, they're stifling their conscience. Because the Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And where should they be? The right place to be is in the house of God before the Lord. And you see this stifling of conscience, let me just tell you what it can lead to. It can lead to a searing of your conscience. Turn over there to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 2. He says in the context, now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that's the Holy Spirit. That in the latter times, that's the last days, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. That means that they have no feeling at all in their conscience. Isn't that why the unsaved are restless today and they have no peace they're in inner turmoil and deep down in their soul there's agony why? because he is stifling his conscience and maybe even he has reached the point where he has seared his conscience speaking lies and hypocrisy Having a conscience seared with a hot iron. 
What's he doing? He's denying his duties toward God. He's living the life of a denier. He's living the life of, a, of denial. I heard recently about a soldier who went AWOL. That's absent without leave. And he was on the run for about two years, hiding from the authorities. And he was living a life, of course, of denial, that he was a soldier in Her Majesty's service. But he said, whenever they eventually caught up with him, the military police, Do you know, I'm glad. I'm relieved now. You've arrested me. From I've run away, I've never had no peace. I'm living the life of a denier. I'm a soldier in the army of the country. And you see, people who are not saved live a life of denial. They deny God exists. They deny they're dependent on him. They, they deny they're accountable to him. They deny the reality and presence of sin in the life. You see, why do they deny it? Because they're no longer conscious of it. And of course, unbelievers behave in a very lenient manner <coughs> towards sin. And they always err on the side of a lenient spirit. And of course they're being misled. Because their mind is darkened and their mind is depraved. And what they want is to pull down God's standard of holiness and God's law and replace it with their own. And they live for sin and they live for self. You see, we have reached the point today when people can profess to be a Christian even profess to be a born-again Christian, claim that they're saved, and yet they can practice the vile sin of homosexuality. They, they, they can claim to be religious, and yet treat God and his standard in the most despicable manner. They have no consciousness of their sin. They have no compulsion. Regarding a life of sin, they deny the holy things of God in a vile way. They deny God. They mock the things of God. They're deluded. They're a denier of Calvary, a denial of Christ, a denial of Christ's cross work. <clears throat> Think of the unbeliever's conscience. He stifles it. It leads to a searing of the consciousness. Now think of the true believer's conscience. What does Paul say, or Peter, having a good conscience? That, that is, the true believer has a conscience that's at peace. He's content. He's got a spirit of rest. He lives his life in the full glare and the application of the word of God. He is a true believer. He's accepted that he's a sinner who needed to be saved. He's come in time and asked Jesus Christ to be his Lord and Saviour. He now has a new life in Christ. He is right with God. Things are settled as far as his life is concerned. He takes on board God's law. He listens like the aircraft controller to the pilot. He listens to what God says. And he accepts God's standard as the right standard for me to live by. Only God has the right to tell us what's right. And only God has the right to tell us what's wrong. And all that God says is right, I embrace. And all that God says is wrong, I, I, I stand against like the psalmist. I hate every false way. And let me say this morning, just before we finish, only the true Christian has a good conscience. See, once you're born again, by the Spirit of God, your conscience is renewed. It is cleansed. 
is purged from evil works. Your conscience is sensitive now to God. Sensitive to God's word. It's been sharpened. You've got a, a new sensibility. You're not trying to stifle it. You're certainly not veering to sear your conscience. You want your conscience to operate in accord with the Holy Scriptures. You want to live a life that adorns the gospel of God. It's God at work in the soul. The true believer seeks to live for the honour and glory of God. He doesn't seek to live in disobedience to God. He's not conscious of any disobedience. Now, there are areas in his life or her life when they may be mistaken in. Of course, things are not perfect. No believer is ever sinlessly perfect this side of eternity. But he knows that he's got a conscience. And his conscience is a, is a guide. It's a reliable guide, not an infallible guide. The only infallible guide is the word of God. The law of that God. The lawgiver himself. But he, like Paul, here's another of those 30 references, Acts 24, 16, laboring to keep a conscience void of offence. He doesn't deliberately engage in wrongdoing. He lives with a concern to do the right thing. He, he will strictly examine himself. Have I sinned in this area or, or in that area? And if he has, he'll own up to it by the grace of God. And he'll not live a careless kind of life. And he'll not be heedless to what God wants him to do. And he'll certainly not be thoughtless. He will take it on board. What's God's will for me? How does God want me to behave? You see, that's all part and parcel of a good conscience. Now this morning, I just want to leave you with the question, have you got a good conscience? If only the true Christian has a good conscience, then you've got to ask yourself, am I a true Christian? Am I trying to stifle my conscience? Deny God and God's word? Or have I a good conscience? Because I've got peace with God. Because my sin has been purged and brought out into the open. Because I want to live for the honour and glory of God. I want to live in a manner that adorns the gospel. So when people look at me as a Christian. They see the real thing. Not a hypocrite. But they see someone who is genuinely true. To what they profess. Isn't that the scourge today in Northern Ireland? People making a profession. Saying things with their mouths. Words. I'm a Christian. And they shout it from the loudest heaven. And yet their life. Is totally totally inconsistent with that verbal testimony and you see there has to be a link I, I say this as I finish Dr. Alan Kearns you've heard me repeating this before this was his maxim very important little truth right believing results in right living if you say I believe I believe in the gospel I believe in Christ you'll live right and if you don't live right it's proof that there's something wrong with your belief and of course, right living is rooted in right believing. There's a correlation between belief and behavior. 
creed and conduct, doctrine and duty. How many people have it all up here in their head and this is the doctrine and they spout it out, they can quote chapter and verse. But when it comes to duty, when it comes to the outworking of the the, the Christian experience, they have no power to live because they've never been truly born of God. Now there's just a couple of thoughts this morning, scratching the surface from this text. Having a good conscience. Remember the overall context? It's suffering. And even in that context, as they suffer, they have sanctified the Lord God in their hearts. They stand without apology. They, 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 they stand in the great hope and tradition of the person and work of Christ. That's the ground of their confidence and assurance. And they have a good conscience. We'll leave it there for today. I trust the Lord will open up this subject. It's a vast subject. And next week we'll we'll take a further bite at this text. And we'll seek to um, apply what we've learned today with what we can follow on uh, from uh, next Lord's Day.